All right, if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bibles up to John chapter 15. If you have one of our Bibles, it's on page 958. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 25 today, and, uh, uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, all but the, the final two verses of the chapter, we'll, we'll pick those up with, uh, as we jump into chapter 16, 16 next week. Jesus, just to recap, has just told the 11 disciples in the upper room about the new relationship that he would have with them, they would have with him through his indwelling Holy Spirit, okay? Started that in, in chapter 14. And in today's passage, he's going to elaborate on that by giving them this extended metaphor in which he makes his seventh and final I am statement in the Gospel of John. Now, this is a specific I am statement. He makes seven of these specific I am statements. Whenever he says I am in John's Gospel, sometimes he just says those words. Whenever he says that, he's, he's implying that he is God. He's claiming to be one with the Father. We could hear him say, I am God. Whenever he adds something specific to that phrase, he reveals a particular aspect of what it means for him to be God in the flesh. And, what, and, and, and not in the flesh like we just talked about in Galatians 5. Not fleshly desires, but God in human form. Humanity. God as one of us. What he says about himself here in John 15 will establish a way of life, not only for these 11 disciples, but for every disciple, for everyone who follows Jesus. And so if we want to live a life that is pleasing to God and beneficial to us, we pray often that things would be done for God's glory and our good. If we want to live that way, then we're going to want to listen very carefully to Jesus' words here in John chapter 15. And I want to make sure that they are his words that we listen to and not mine. So I want to pray and then we'll dig in. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Let's say I have an apple tree in my backyard, writes Paul Tripp. Each year its apples are dry, wrinkled, brown, and pulpy. After several seasons, my wife says it doesn't make any sense to have this huge tree and never be able to eat any of the apples. Can't you do something? One day my wife looks out the window to see me in, in the yard carrying branch cutters, an industrial-grade staple gun, a ladder, and two bushels of apples. I climb the ladder. I cut off all the pulpy apples and staple shiny red apples onto every branch of the tree. From a distance, our tree looks like it is full of a beautiful harvest. But if you were my wife, what would you be thinking at this moment? Like that mustache of his is pulling on his brain cells, right? If you know Paul Tripp, you know his mustache. This sounds absurd, right? We laugh at that because it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Is that fruit going to last? You staple this fruit, it's going to look pretty for a while, but what it, what's it going to do? It's going to rot, right? Being stapled onto a diseased, a dry, or a dead tree is not the same thing as sprouting from a healthy, vibrant one, right? 
Here's the thing, though. We've all been fruit staplers in some way, shape, or form. We've all tried to make our lives look better than they really are, but the underlying desire behind that is that we all want our lives to be fruitful. We want meaning. We want value. we We want to produce. But here's the reality. Here's the main point that we're going to see in our passage this morning. If we want to live fruitful lives, we must remain in Christ. If we want to live fruitful lives, we must remain in Christ. We're going to look at this in three ways this morning as the passage is going to show us, okay? The reality, the requirement, and the response. The reality. Only branches that remain in the true vine produce fruit. That's the reality. The requirement. We remain in the true vine by remaining in Christ's love and keeping his commands. And then the response. Those who hate the true vine will also hate the branches that remain. The reality, the requirement, and the response. First, the reality. Only branches that remain in the true vine produce fruit. Look at verse 1. We'll go through verse 8. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he produces And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. In Genesis 49, if you remember way back when we went through Genesis together, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, gathered his 12 sons around him and and gave them the blessings. And these 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel, representative of, of the nation, right? And in Genesis 49, if you remember, he called Joseph a fruitful vine beside a spring whose branches climb over the wall. And throughout the Old Testament, this vine metaphor was used then to describe the nation of Israel, but unfortunately it was rarely in a positive way. Why? Israel was the vine in the Old Testament that ultimately failed to produce fruit because its people constantly turned away from God, the gardener, who uprooted them from Egypt and replanted them in the land of Canaan. Here Jesus told the 11 disciples, hey, I, am the true vine. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He planted me into this world so that I might produce abundant fruit. I am the true vine. Jesus was going to do what Israel had failed to do, and he told his disciples that they would also produce fruit because of their relationship with him. But he made sure to clarify that it was only because of their relationship with him that they would have any fruit at all. In this metaphor, there are two kinds of branches. 
those that produce fruit and those that don't. And the difference between the two is that those that produce fruit are those that remain in the vine, in the true vine. And those that don't produce fruit are those that don't remain in the true vine. If you're in the vine, you produce. If you're not, you don't. Jesus told his disciples, remain in me, the true vine, and you will produce fruit, and not just a little bit of fruit. Did you notice that, the words that he used? You'll produce much fruit. You can't produce fruit any other way, he told them. A detached branch is a fruitless branch because you can do nothing without me. Yes, we can, we can do things that seem good on the outside in this world, but if we're not attached to Jesus, uh, in, in the New Testament it says that the things that are done without faith, it's impossible to please God without faith. If we do these things, they may seem like good things on the surface, but they're really stapling fruit to a dead tree if they're not attached to the vine. That word remain is repeated 10 times here between verses 4, or, uh, uh, yeah, 10 times between verses 4 through 10 in just six, seven verses. And it's repeated another time in verse 16. The Greek word behind that is actually used some 40 plus times in the Gospel of John. And it gets translated in the English words uh, like remain here, but also into words like stay, abide, continue, live, reside, rest, last. Not as in the, the final one, but as in the, the continuation to keep going. In chapter 14, Jesus told the disciples that the Father was going to send them the Holy Spirit to remain with them. It's the same Greek word. And that he would be in them. Essentially, Jesus was telling his disciples here, listen, the nourishment that you need in order to produce the much fruit, it comes from this ongoing I in you and you in me relationship through the Holy Spirit that I'm sending to you. To remain in Christ, we could say, is to continue in dependence upon him and in confidence in him as the Holy Spirit who lives in us enables us to do so. To remain in Christ is to continue in dependence upon him and confidence in him as his Holy Spirit who lives in us enables us to do so. One author put it this way. In the context of John 15, to remain in Christ means to live with a sense that the Son of God loves us and gave himself for us, that he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit, and that we know that our life is now his and no longer our own. Are you remaining in Christ? It's important to answer that question honestly because there's more than fruit production at stake here. Did you notice what the gardener does with fruitless branches? Verse 2, he removes them. Anybody do spring cleanup this past couple weeks before like winter hit again? Isn't it funny how like before the, the trees bloomed, you couldn't really tell what was dead and what was alive? But as soon as that bloom hit and then the cold snap and the wind came, you know what we had in our front yard? Dead branches that weren't on the tree anymore. He removes them. Is a branch able to produce fruit if it doesn't remain in the vine? 
Jesus tells us no in verse 4. Verse 2, he removes the branches that don't produce fruit. No branch can produce fruit if it doesn't remain in the vine. So what happens then to those that don't remain in Christ? Do they just simply get removed? Verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, they throw them into the fire, and they are burned. This is judgment language here. That he's talking about the final judgment of unbelievers. In the end, those who don't remain in Christ will be shown to have never been in him in the first place. We've already seen several occasions in John's gospel where people's belief turned out to be superficial, right? Not the least of which was Judas himself, who spent all this time with Jesus and the other 11 in this inner circle. And as soon as Jesus gave him the piece of bread in the upper room, what did he do? He left. He went away to go betray his friend, to go betray Jesus. And in Matthew 7, Jesus said that some of those who will be judged in the end will be people who thought that they were producing fruit. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, listen, many will say to me, that's troubling. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, didn't we do miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Didn't we produce fruit? Jesus will say, no, you just stapled it on. You failed to come to me and to be in me. We need to pay attention to Jesus' warning here. Do you know that it's possible to think that you're doing a lot of great things for God when the reality is that you're a withering branch that's detached from the vine because you don't actually know Christ? It's impossible to remain in Christ unless you're in Christ to begin with, just like it's impossible for any of you to remain in this room unless you're already here. If you're in Christ, you should be able to answer these two questions. One, how has Jesus changed your life? And two, how is Jesus changing your life? How has Jesus changed your life and how is Jesus changing your life? In other words, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Now, you may not see all of the ways that he's changing you. You may need other brothers and sisters in Christ to even point that out to you because you're so near the the struggle that it's hard for you to see that there's any forward movement in your life. But you should be able to point to something. Why? Because when Jesus makes his home in you, He will never leave you the same. He cleans house. If anyone is in in Christ, I combined, jumbled there. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old house is gone. The new house is here. As we saw in Galatians 5 during our prayer time, the fruit, what is the fruit? The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
It's joy, it's peace, it's patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Are these things increasing in your life? Do people see this change in you? Maybe not in all of those things at once, but I guarantee you that as you grow in one of them, the other ones will raise up with it. These things will increase in your life if you're in Christ because everyone who's in Christ, I said it again, Everyone who's in Jesus is being gracefully remade into his image, praise God, including me, right? And becoming more and more like him as we continue to grow in dependence upon him and confidence in him. Listen to me, weary brother or sister. Christ has you, and he will grow you because he's given you everything that you need to do that everything for life and godliness. You lack nothing. Nothing. Sometimes we can feel fruitless, right? As believers. Sometimes we're stapling that fruit on left and right as frantically as we possibly can because we don't know what to do otherwise. There are times in our lives where we feel withered and dry, where we grow complacent or apathetic, where we give in to sin more readily instead of fighting so hard against it because we're just weary. That's why we need to listen carefully to Jesus' gracious words to his disciples in verse 3. Listen, did you hear what he said to him? You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In other words, hey, You are fruit-producing branches because I've planted my word in you. And it's taken deep root. And it will only go deeper. And it will only grow wider and farther. Jesus may have been saying this to the 11 disciples at the time, but the truth of these words applies to every disciple of his, including us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In him, in Jesus, there it is again, in Christ, right? You also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when, what? You heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. My Father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. When the seed of the gospel takes root in our hearts through faith in Christ, we have, as Jesus said in in John 7, streams of living water flowing from deep within through the indwelling Holy Spirit. What do you get when you have a well-planted seed and a well-watered, a a supply of good water? You get growth. You get growth. The Spirit and the Word work together in our hearts to guarantee that we will produce gospel fruit with our lives. That's why we need the steady nourishment of God's word. That's why we come and we open our Bibles together on Sunday mornings. That's why when we encourage one another throughout the week, we do so quoting scripture to one another. It's why we hide it in our hearts. We need this nourishment. One author put it this way. I love this. The word of Christ is the instrument of Christ 
used by the Spirit of Christ to nurture union with Christ and transform us into the image of Christ. Let me say that again. The word of Christ is the instrument of Christ used by the Spirit of Christ to nurture union with Christ and to transform us into the image of Christ. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, has been laid for your faith in his excellent word. That's why Jesus told the disciples in verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, my word remains in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. His word will nourish their union through him, or with him through the Holy Spirit and conform their desires to his own so that even their prayers would be fruitful. The word and the spirit work without fail. We need to understand that. The word and the spirit work without fail. We will produce fruit if we are in Christ. And our heavenly father, the gardener, he prunes every branch that produces fruit. Why? So that it will produce more fruit. Several of you are gardeners. Several of you like to do things in your yard. You understand this concept well, right? You go outside, you, you get your gloves on, you get your gardening shears, and you go and you carefully and meticulously cut away everything that's diseased or dried up or dead. Sometimes you even cut away some of the green parts of the plant, parts that are alive. Why? So that you can focus the flow of nutrients to the right areas and produce the most growth in that plant. Sometimes our father's pruning is painful. I see a lot of heads nodding. I'm not telling you anything new, right? It often involves suffering that we don't fully understand. It often involves hardships that we'd rather not go through. Sometimes, sometimes, he even cuts away some of the good things in our lives, some of the green things, if you will. Things that we think are beneficial to us Oh, but our heavenly father, the gardener, knows better. He's a perfect father who lovingly disciplines his children. Hebrews 12 tells us that his discipline, we'll call it his pruning, is actually one of the ways that helps us know that we are, in fact, his children. And he does so that we can share in his holiness. Hebrews 12, 11, no discipline seems enjoyful at the time. Amen and amen, right? But painful, Aren't you, aren't you thankful that the Bible's honest with us? Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's what we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand. We shouldn't mistake pruning for punishment. We shouldn't mistake pruning for punishment, though, because we have been grafted into the true vine. We've been united with Christ who took our punishment in our place. There's no more punishment for us, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As the true, the true vine, he succeeded where Israel failed. He obeyed the Father perfectly. He was without sin, and yet... He willingly suffered and died at the hands of sinful men according to the perfect plan of the Father. 
And as sinful men crucified him, Jesus endured the full weight of God's righteous wrath that we deserve so that we could receive mercy and forgiveness, nourishment instead by trusting in Christ. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and Satan and death. You know what? This true vine will never die again. Never die again. And his resurrection ensures that every branch, every branch that's attached to him through faith will live and will produce fruit. His Father is glorified by that. When we remain in Christ and his words remain in us, his indwelling spirit will graciously help us learn to pray for pruning instead of comfort. There are days where that's easier for me than some days, and there are days where that is, feels like it's an impossible thing to pray for. Lord, rid me of all that is fruitless. Prune me and make me more like Jesus. But his indwelling spirit helps us by grace learn how to pray for pruning over comfort because his indwelling spirit by grace, deepens our trust in the gardener who holds the shears. You know, he never makes a wrong cut. The reality is that only branches that remain in the true vine produce fruit. Let's look at the requirement. We remain in the true vine by remaining in Christ's love and keeping his commands. Look at verse 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Now, verse 9 is worth repeating here so that we don't simply gloss over it and move on without basking in the glorious reality that Jesus just said to his disciples. Did you catch these words? As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Think about that for a moment. Jesus loves his disciples here and his disciples everywhere with the exact same love that God the Father has for him. This is love without need. This is love without fault. This is love without limit. It has no beginning or end because it has always existed in the perfect union of the eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the purest and richest and most vibrant kind of love that anyone could ever know or experience. It's love that has existed before humanity, before the foundations of the world even. Love that functions and thrives perfectly without humanity. And yet, this love this love, the love that the Father has for the Son, this is the love that Jesus shares with his disciples. We could just pray right there and end. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Why wouldn't you want to remain in this love? Last week we saw that love for Jesus and obedience to Jesus go hand in hand. Obedience 
to Jesus is evidence of our love for Jesus. But here Jesus linked that obedience to his own love for his disciples and even his love for the Father. But notice that he didn't say, if you keep my commands, you will earn my love. Right? He didn't say that. He said, you will remain in my love. That means that they already had his love to begin with. And it's his love for them that would fuel their love for him and obedience to him in the same way that the Father's love for him fueled his love for the Father and his obedience to the Father. If Christ has set his love on you, there's no threat of losing that love. It's the same love that the Father has for the Son. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. So keep my commands just as I have kept the Father's commands. Why? Because our love is secure. It's secure. Let's keep going. Verse 11. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Some people think that the Bible is full of a bunch of rules that that take all the fun out of life and rob them of their joy. But Jesus just told his disciples that it's actually quite the opposite. Joy in this world is incomplete apart from Jesus Christ. No matter what you pursue that this world has to offer, it will always fall woefully short of the joy that can only be found in Jesus. Just as his love is the greatest love, his joy is the greatest joy, and he fills us with that joy when we obey his commands because his commands lead to our joy in him as we rest securely in his love for us. You know what the first two things that were listed in the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 were? Love and joy. The Spirit will grow us in these things as we continue in Christ's word. Look at verse 12. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask in the, fa- the Father in my name, he will give to you. This is what I command to you. Love one another. Now this little section is bookended by the command that we heard Jesus give to them at the end of chapter 13. Love one another as I have loved you. How did he love them? He loved them to the end, right? He loved them by laying his life down for them. His love is the greatest love, and he called his disciples to love one another in the same way. But they were more than just his disciples. He called them his friends. The Greek word conveys a meaning that goes beyond just buddies or besties. It is beloved ones. Not because they had everything in common and they could finish each other's sentences, but because he was going to lay his life down for them and he was revealing the Father's plan of redemption to them. As his disciples, as his servants, they had no privilege, no right to know what their teacher and master was up to or even his reasoning behind it. But he made known to them everything that he had heard from the Father. This is grace. This is friendship with Christ. 
Obedience to Jesus doesn't produce that friendship with him. It displays it. The ESV Gospel Transformation Bible puts it this way. The radical grace of the gospel transforms servanthood into friendship. Only grace can free us to obey Jesus out of friendship and worship and no longer out of fear and self-interest. Do you know this grace? Do you have this friendship with Christ? You want to know what the radical grace of the gospel is? Jesus laid, didn't lay his life down for people who were already his friends. He laid his life down for his enemies in order to make them, to make us his friends. Romans 5, 7 through 8, for rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in this. Just as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. That in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies hostile to God, Christ died for us. Would you turn away from that kind of grace? Would you reject that kind of love? You need to know that sin makes a terrible friend because it robs you of your own life in the end. So why not turn away from your sin? Why not turn instead and find true friendship in Jesus Christ by trusting in him? In verse 16, Jesus reminded his friends that he was, that he was the one who initiated and secured the friendship and he guaranteed not only that they would be fruit-producing branches who remained connected to the vine, the true vine, but that the fruit that they produced would remain as well. There's no spoiling of these apples. I appointed you, he said, to go and produce fruit. Think with me to Matthew 28 for a second. What does he tell them? Therefore, go and make disciples. Go and produce fruit. The fruit that they would produce was not only the fruit of the Spirit that conformed them more and more into the image of Christ, it was also the fruit of evangelism as they went out and proclaimed the gospel message and called people to repentance and faith in Christ. Do you know that we are part of that lasting fruit as followers of Jesus some 2,000 years later? And now we remain in the true vine by remaining in Christ's love and keeping his commands. That's the requirement. Finally, let's look at the response. Those who hate the true vine will also hate the branches that remain in the true vine. Look at verses 18 through 25. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I have spoke to you. A servant is not greater than his master. We heard that a couple chapters ago. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they don't know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. The one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But this has happened so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. We need to understand that a fruitful life in Christ is not a life 
free of opposition. When Jesus said, if the world hates you, here in verse 18, he wasn't telling his disciples that it was a possibility. He was telling them that it was an inevitability. The Greek could be translated to say, since the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Because they belong to Jesus, they would be hated by the world. Now, that might sound unsettling at first, but let's flip that around for a minute. They would be hated by the world. Why? Because they belong to Jesus. Do you hear the hope in that? Because they belonged to Jesus. Jesus was reassuring his disciples here. There's a difference between branches that lay their lives down for one another and branches that are dead. Jesus' disciples needed to know that the hatred of the world would not be able to remove them from the true vine because he had chosen them out of the world and he was sending his Holy Spirit to live in them. And as he said back in chapter 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. The disciples would come to understand and believe this reality after they received the Holy Spirit, and they would become so confident of this that they then would echo Jesus' words as they encouraged the disciples in the early church. In 1 John 3, 13 and 14, John wrote, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know, we know we have passed from death to life. Why? Because we love our brothers and sisters. As I have loved you, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. As I love you, so you are to love one another. John says, the one who does not love remains in death. They're dead branches. Dead branches. Fruit staplers. Jesus was telling his disciples these things so that they wouldn't be surprised or afraid and so that they would remain joyful in him. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In Acts chapter 5, after the apostles were imprisoned and flogged by the Jewish high court, you know what they did? They walked out and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of being treated shamefully on behalf of the name, it says. What, what name? Jesus told them here in verse 21. They will do all these things to you on account of my name. We need to remember that when we face opposition from the world because of our relationship to Christ, that opposition is first and foremost opposition to Jesus himself. When we understand that, we'll be more ready to endure that opposition because we know that Christ himself endures it with us. We are sharing, as Paul says, in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we will not be overcome by any opposition because why? The darkness cannot overcome the light. But we need to make sure that our suffering isn't because of our own sin. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way, we should be honest enough to admit that sometimes we experience opposition and criticism not because we are like Christ, but because we are not. We Christians can be pig-headed, angular, and sadly, sometimes too like the world that opposes the gospel. In that case, criticism and opposition may arise because we have behaved foolishly, inconsistently, and in an unchrist-like way. Guilty. Guilty is charged. If you've ever suffered as a result of your own sin, you know that there's no rejoicing to be found in that kind of suffering. 
This is why we must remain in Christ's love and keep his commands, because when our joy is found in him, we will be less prone to wander away from him and into the sin that he has already paid for. Many people hated Jesus and persecuted him while he was on the earth. Here he told his disciples that they could expect the same treatment because of their union with him, but he also told them that some people would respond positively. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You're going to bear fruit. Even in the midst of, of the persecution, they would still bear this gospel fruit. In fact, the early church grew and spread rapidly through persecution. Jesus wasn't saying here that if he hadn't come, people would, would have been sinless. It was because the world was hopelessly in sin that Jesus came in the first place. And so he, so he could save and redeem sinners. That's why he came. The point here is that because Jesus had come and given them the Father's words and works, he had revealed the Father, as John said in John 1.18, they had no excuse for hating him, and hating Jesus meant that they also hated the Father. If the Father has loved me and I have loved you, then if the world hates me, they hate the Father. And that left them guilty of sin. They were dead branches in danger of being gathered up and thrown into the fire unless they turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus. Again, the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible comments on these verses and says this, why does the gospel of grace elicit such violent opposition from both religious and non-religious segments of society? Grace is disruptive before it's redemptive. The gospel sabotages all forms of self-salvation. Our need is so great that it took the death of the Son of God to save people like us. And the good news is that Jesus willingly and gladly went to the cross for us. Their hatred for Christ is born out of the guilt and conviction of sin. Darkness runs from the light. Why? Because the light reveals the dark deeds. Their hatred for Jesus was a fulfillment of Scripture, but it wasn't, this is so important, it wasn't a hindrance in God's ability to save. Darkness has always hated the light. And that means that the world that's enslaved in darkness by the evil one will naturally hate the one who exposes their darkness. That's why the world needs a supernatural intervention. That's why God loved the world in this way that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. But that's also why those who don't believe in him remain condemned already. John 3, 19 through 21, a little bit farther from that, what I just quoted in John 3, 16, Jesus told Nicodemus, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. They just want to keep on stapling fruit. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, Jesus said, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. By God. Jesus quoted Psalm 69 here 
at the end here in verse 25. In that psalm, King David asks to be delivered from undeserved oppression. You know what the beauty of the gospel is? It's that Jesus willingly allowed himself to be delivered over to undeserved oppression. Why? So that he could deliver us from the sin and the punishment that we did deserve. There's good news for dead branches. Jesus specializes in grafting branches in to the vine. So you don't need to staple any fruit on for yourself. And there's good news for branches that have been grafted in. Yes, the Father may and will prune you, but the world will never be able to cut you off from the vine. You will produce fruit. So which kind of branch are you? If we want to live fruitful lives, we must remain in Christ. Only branches that remain in the true vine produce fruit. We remain in the true vine by remaining in Christ's love and keeping his commands. And we do so in anticipation. Don't be surprised. We do so in anticipation that those who hate the true vine will also hate the branches that remain in the vine. But Christ will take even the opposition of the world and produce fruit in us to the glory of God the Father. And as the fruit of Christ's likeness is produced in us by the indwelling spirit, as we endure opposition, as we proclaim the good news of the gospel to the world that opposes us, and as we pray according to the word that remains in us, brothers and sisters, we can trust that the true vine will produce more fruit by grafting in dead branches before they get gathered up and thrown into the fire. And he will give them eternal life to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have grafted us in, that you have made us in Christ, and that Christ has secured our union with him through his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection, that he has given us, you together have given us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to nurture us and give us the life-giving nutrients of your word as we remain in it, that we might grow and produce much fruit for his glory and our good. We're thankful that you've given us all things for life and godliness. We're thankful that not even the opposition of the world can remove us from the vine. And we're grateful for all the grace that you've shown us in Jesus Christ and the love that you have loved your son with is the love that we get from you because of Jesus. May you be praised. We pray this in his name. Amen.